Today we're going to talk about a church from our series in Revelation. The church is called Smyrna. It was a little. It was a city in Asia, and they were in the middle of some real difficulties. And I think a spoiler for them would have been, in some respects, one of the names of Jesus. When you study the the book of Revelation, you start chapter 1, you see a number of descriptions of Jesus. And then, as the seven churches hear the message of Jesus, here's something that happens. You see each of those descriptions given once again to each of the churches, one per church. And so you could look at this in many respects as being a, a spoiler, that you know that the ruler of the kings of all the earth You know that the Almighty God, you know that the first and the last, the one who was dead, the one who was alive again, he is the one who's telling the story. He's the one giving the message, and he can provide such incredible encouragement. And I believe that's exactly what happens for the folks in Smyrna. And I would just say this again, when you kind of know how the end is, you're more comfortable processing the information along the way. So we're going to talk about that for a little while this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1. Look at it with me, if you would. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Father, I pray in these moments that we have, speak life to us and encouragement in Jesus' name. Amen. Smyrna was one of the seven churches written, uh, written a letter given to them from Jesus, seven churches in Asia. It's about 35 to 40 miles from Ephesus. We talked about Ephesus last week. It was a seaport. It was a beautiful city. In fact, it was considered by some to be what was called the beauty of Asia. The beauty of Asia. It was a gorgeous city built on the slopes of Mount Pegasus. It was a very prominent city along with Ephesus. And interestingly enough, Smyrna still exists today. It's now the modern city of Izmir, Turkey. About 500,000 people live there. And really significant is the church... There's still a church in Smyrna. Now, there isn't a church in Ephesus, nor is there a city. That's gone. And it causes me to immediately think, the church in Smyrna was obedient to the word that the Lord gave to them, and they still exist even today, 21 centuries later. Gives us hope in the midst of all of the challenges that we we may face. We don't know exactly who was the one who started the church. What we do know is the Apostle Paul spent two years the city of Ephesus teaching. And in that period of time, we read in Ephesus, excuse me, we read in Acts chapter 19 and verse number 10 about Paul's time there. He says, this went on for two years, his teaching, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What does that mean? It means as Paul was teaching, people from the entire province were coming to Ephesus to hear him teach. They took the message, probably went back to Smyrna and began this church. Smyrna didn't didn't receive, as it were, a needs improvement section. In each of the seven churches, or each of the seven messages, there is a similar pattern that occurs. And one of those, one of the parts of that pattern is there are some things that they needed correction. Smyrna did not receive that, nor did the church at Philadelphia. They're the only two churches that didn't have a correction side. 
And it's very significant when you begin to see what was happening in the lives of the Christians in Smyrna. It was a center for Roman emperor worship. In fact, in 26 AD, the city built a temple uh, in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And it was a seat of Roman emperor worship, which was direct conflict, as you might imagine, with those who would declare Jesus as Lord. They weren't declaring Caesar as Lord. That brought them into conflict with the government of the time. There was also a very vocal group of Jews who lived in the city who were, who were very antagonistic against those who were following Christ. In fact, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. What, did that mean? what does that mean? It just means that they were Jews in name only or in origin or in heritage only, but they were not godly individuals. They were persecuting the Christians who were there. And similar to other churches in the region, it was a, it was a hotbed of pagan worship. Idols were everywhere. Here is just a, a thought that I, I, want, I want you to be extraordinarily encouraged today with this phrase. You ready? The intent of this message is to prepare the church for suffering. Now, aren't you encouraged by that today? You say, why did I pick today to come to church? Oh, my goodness. It's a holiday weekend. I could have been doing it. And now the guy's going to talk about suffering? Are you kidding? Well, there is an encouragement here. And it's not so much that suffering happens, but it's our response to it. We're going to spend some time talking about it. And especially in light of Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, nowhere, nowhere, and to no one, with the idea of Jesus seeing all that happens, is in control of all things, his insight would be more encouraging than to a church is in the middle of the challenges and the difficulty the Smyrna Christians were experiencing. So we're going to talk about a few things this morning. The first is this. I want you to be encouraged today that Jesus is aware of our challenges and difficulties. This is really, really important. And on the one side of this, I kind of understand. You know, we don't, we don't have the luxury of Jesus walking with us. We understand, as followers of Christ, that the Spirit of God lives within us. We know the presence of Christ is with us. We understand that. Also know this, Jesus is very aware of everything that's happening in your life. And there's something of great strength in that. To know that he knows the challenges and the difficulties that I'm facing. This past week was a very emotional week for our family. Uh, and and I, it, it's almost, I look back on it and I say, golly, I can't, I can't believe how emotional it was. But then... Your children and your, your family is, is very, our family is very important to us. Last Saturday, we got a phone call, or we, we were expecting Amanda, our daughter and son-in-law live in San Diego, to come up and see us for the weekend, and Cameron was going to be doing some work on their house, and Amanda was going to bring Moxie and come on up and spend, Moxie's a year old, and we were going to spend a little bit of time together, and, but she's, Moxie's been really sick, and so Amanda took her to, took her to urgent care. And ended up happening, she was having tremendous difficulty breathing. And she ended up with a condition that we didn't, had never heard of before, bronchiolitis. I didn't know what that was. It's similar to what I understand is to pneumonia. But it has, a greater, it has a greater reach than pneumonia does. She was struggling to breathe. And the, and the doctors and those who were caring for her in urgent care were very concerned. And they were showing that concern, which was raising the concern of Amanda, who was there at the hospital urgent care with her. They said, we've got to get her to Children's Hospital. And so they just continued and continued and finally got her to Children's. Well, Marcy and I are getting to San Diego. We're on our way down to be with, be with them. 
prior to my leaving, I got on social media and I just posted a simple asking for prayer of all my Facebook friends. That's all I said. To all my Facebook friends, would you pray? I want to tell you, over the next week, the outpouring of support and prayers from people all over the world that I am so privileged to be friends with. I want to tell you what that did for me. That encouraged me because others were aware of what I was walking through, of what we were walking through, of what Moxie was facing. And then we put it on the prayer network at Crossroads Church. And what happened? Same thing. People are praying. People are lifting this little this little precious baby to the Lord. Now, I know it's special to us, but you know, when things affect us, it is incredible to know that there is somebody walking with you. Even though Jesus is unseen, I want you to know He understands what you're walking through today. He's not, he's not aside from that. He is concerned exactly where you are. He's aware, he knows the difficulties that you're facing. Be encouraged, be encouraged. When you look at what the Smyrnans were facing, it's, it's not dissimilar to what we face. Jesus says the difficulties, or excuse me, the affliction, the affliction. This literally means, this literally means to be crushed, pressing, pressure, or this, anything which burdens the Spirit. I could just stop a minute and ask that question. Have you ever had anything burden your spirit? Affliction. Affliction. The poverty he speaks of. He said they were poor. Not only were they poor, the, the, the original language speaks to the issue that they were destitute. There were, they had nothing. Why? They would not declare Caesar as Lord. And because they would not declare Caesar as Lord, it put them at odds with the local government. They were already at odds with the Jews. They were at odds with everyone. They were poor. They were destitute. They had nothing. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. And I love what Jesus said. I know your poverty, but yet you're rich. You're rich. Paul talks about being rich in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says this, that the riches of God, that they are incalculable, unsearchable, and they are immeasurable. Understand, material possessions aren't necessarily an indicator of true wealth. And what an incredible contrast. The Smyrnans, while they were poor materially, they were rich spiritually. What a contrast between them and the Laodiceans. We'll talk about them in a couple of weeks. Revelation chapter 3 speaks of them. You say, I am rich. This is Jesus speaking to you. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, when I have to, if I had to make a choice, I'll take the spiritual wealth any day of the week because it is uncalculable, it is immeasurable, and it is unsearchable. I want to be considered rich in the eyes of God. Years ago when our kids were really little, we didn't have a whole lot of, we didn't have too many, I don't think we had two nickels to rub together, frankly. And we were saying sometime it had come up that, you know, we just didn't have anything. You know, we're not, we're not rich. We're not rich. And one of our little ones said, yes, we are. We're rich in Jesus. I went, okay, out of the mouth of babes, we've just been corrected. But it's true. When we know Christ, we are rich beyond measure. 
There is a wealth that comes from knowing him that can't be calculated. It cannot be searched out and understood. But we are rich. They were also slandered. I don't know if you've ever been slandered. I don't want to tell you something. It isn't fun. When people speak ill of you, because who, to whom do you turn? Because if you try to defend yourself, you just feel like it gets worse. When people say something that isn't true about you, I want to tell you, it hurts. It wounds deeply, and that's exactly what is happening. And not only happening, it's happening from those who are, quote-unquote, the people of God, the synagogue of Satan, the Jews who are in the city, are slandering them because of their faith in God. That hurts. But Jesus also sees their suffering, even to the point of death, imprisonment, even to the point of death, he says. And so I would just ask this question. Are you under pressure this morning? Financial pressure? Family pressure? Pressure at work? Pressure just trying to face the day? I want you to know something. Jesus knows. He's aware of what you're walking through today. He's mindful of it. But he doesn't just know. Jesus heals. He restores. He saves. He is able to make a way when, no, when there doesn't seem to be any way ever to be made. Jesus knows and is able. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, and I use the Amplified to, to kind of give you the full impact of this. Casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, and all your concerns once and for all upon him. Let me stop. If you've got cares and anxieties and worries and concerns, cast them all upon Jesus today. He is aware. He heals. He restores. He saves. He is the one who is able to bring you out of that challenging place. Listen, for he cares, for he cares about you. Not, not the you collectively, you individually. You, right where you are this morning. What you're dealing with today. He cares about you with deepest affection. And watches over you very carefully. Wow. Here's a phrase for you. Life is hard. Life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. Paul said it in the Romans, and I use Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He says, all around us as we observe a pregnant creation. That's an interesting phrase. All around us we observe a pregnant creation. Now listen how he unpacks it. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The pain, the hurt, the Spirit of God is arousing us within we're also feeling the birth pangs. And listen to this. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Life is hard, but God is good. The second thought this morning is that don't be surprised that persecution is an outcome of following Christ. Don't be surprised that persecution is an outcome of following Christ. And it's important that I just pause for a second and, and, and underscore this. I really believe this is one of the reasons that many of us fail to follow Christ aggressively is we just don't want the baggage that comes with it. I don't ever in, in my life, I don't ever want to be offensive to anybody. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be that guy that people turn around and run from when they see me coming. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be, 
you know, as kind as I can in every circumstance. But I will tell you that when you stand up for your faith in any, in any measure, there's going to be pushback. And I honestly believe that's why some of us are just saying, you know, I'm just going to kind of keep it under wraps. I don't want anybody to know. I don't want to be bold in my faith. I don't really want to stand up for Christ at school because if I do, I know what's going to happen. I don't really want to be that guy or that gal at work that just that has their Bible at lunchtime. I don't want to be that guy because I know what it's going to do. I don't want to... I understand. But we also have to understand that it's natural. It's natural. It's an outcome of following Christ. In fact, around 215 million 215 million Christians face significant levels of persecution in the world today. It's about 1 in 12 Christians live where their faith is either illegal, forbidden, or punished. Gratefully, in the United States, we're not there. And that is worthy of an amen. Yes, thank God. But I also want you to hear from a magazine article, Time Magazine Online, July 29, 2016, Time Magazine is not a particularly friendly to the things of God, but I want you to listen to what Time Magazine wrote. Some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices for their beliefs lately. The teacher in New Jersey suspended for giving a student a Bible. The football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field after the end of a game. The fire chief in Atlanta fired for, for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. The Marine Court marshaled, the Marine court marshaled for pasting a Bible verse above her desk and other examples of new intolerance. Anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater at Americans who hold traditional beliefs about marriage and accuse anti-abortion Christians of waging a supposed war on women. This new vigorous secularism has catapulted mockery of Christianity and other forms of religious traditionalism into the mainstream and set a new low for what counts as civil criticism of people's most cherished beliefs. In some precincts, the quote-unquote faith of our fathers is controversial as never before in the U.S. But it shouldn't come as a surprise. Persecution is normal. It's a normal outcome for following Christ. The facts are, let me just give you a few of them. Being out of sync with culture, being out of sync with culture leads to persecution. And can I just say it's okay to be out of sync with culture? Say it again. It's okay to be out of sync with culture. Because there is culture, and then there is culture. And I want to tell you, and I'm just going to say this, this is a hot button at this point, but I'm going to keep pressing on this button. It is absolutely abhorrent of what is happening in our country in relationship to the unborn. It is abhorrent. It is ungodly. It is from hell itself. And hear me, anyone who claims to be a Christian... Anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and applauds anything, I will tell you, is in sync not with the culture of Christ, but in the culture of this world. And the culture of this world will be judged by God. So when I think about, I'm not talking about styles of clothes. That comes and goes. I mean, come on. I'm wearing today stuff that I wore when I was younger. Younger. My uncle, my uncle Sid, years ago, this is like this is like 45 years ago, 50 years ago. He was in his home in Missouri. He had a pair of shoes. And he said, I've had these since the 20s or the 30s. He said, and they're back in style in the 70s. Hang on, it'll all come around, folks. 
It's not about that. That's not being in sync with culture. But when we're talking about, listen, listen to how John said it. It's just easier to let John say it. One of the letters that he wrote, he said, don't set, the, don't set the affections of your heart on this world or in loving the things of the world. The love of the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. For all that the world can offer us, the gratification of flesh, the allurement of things of the world, and the obsession with status and importance, none of these things come from the Father, but from the world. This world and its desires are in the process of passing away, but those who love to do the will of God will live forever. It is okay to be out of sync with the culture of the world and to be in sync with the culture of Christ. And I would suggest that as followers of Jesus Christ, let's get in sync with Jesus and stay in sync with Jesus, and, I'll, and then we can believe can believe to make influence and inroads into our world. It's being in sync with him that's important. Well, another fact is that persecution is inevitable. It's inevitable. Okay, now I talked a little bit about spoilers, you know. Here's a spoiler, but honestly, if you have not seen the movie The Matrix after 20 years, I give up on you. This isn't a spoiler at this point. But there's a scene in this movie happening between the villain and the hero. Mr. Smith is the villain. Neo is the, is the hero. And Mr. Smith is ready. He thinks he's got the upper hand. And so he's holding Neo in front of this on a train track. And you can hear the train in the background. And he says this. Do you hear that? You know what that is? That's the sound of inevitability. In other words, he's saying, this is what's going to happen. You're You're toast. Well, he didn't, and I'll, here's a spoiler alert, Neo survives and he wins. Okay, there you go. Here's the point. Persecution for a follower of Jesus Christ is inevitable. It isn't if, it's inevitable. It will happen. It is happening around the world. In fact, the most persecuted nation in the world for, to a, for a follower of Christ is North Korea. And you can look at a list. You can find that list. North Korea, Iran is on that. Syria is on that. There are a number of nations that are absolutely antagonistic to those who are followers of Christ. But understand, it is inevitable. 2 Timothy chapter 3, anyone who wants to live all out for Christ. I love the way that's phrased. Anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. Now look at this. There's no getting around it. It's going to happen. And again, is this the reason that we choose to not be as bold about our faith? And again, I'm not talking about being the obnoxious guy. I'm just talking about saying, no, I believe this. This is what I live for. This is what characterizes my life. Well, here's another fact. Make no mistake, Satan's involved. Make no mistake, Satan is involved. God's control over things, that's kind of what we, you read this, you read these letters and you see that Jesus is, con, is in control, but that does not mean, God's control does not mean Satan is prevented from inflicting pain and hurt. He should not be, we should not make him to be under every rock and behind every bush, but understand he is involved. First Peter 5, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's just true. Here's another fact. Persecution's temporary. Temporary. It's really interesting, as you read the story, or rather the letter to, to Smyrna, 
Jesus says, you will be persecuted for 10 days. Is that a literal 10 days? When you read the book of Revelation, you find out there are a tremendous amount of symbolic language. This is one of those phrases. It most likely means a shortened period of time. It's not something that will last forever. But can I just tell you, when you're in the middle of affliction, poverty, slander, when things are just coming unglued everywhere you turn and everything that happens, everything is turmoil, I will tell you, it seems like an eternity. And you're saying, this is, when is this going to end? You get up the next day and you go, and there it is again. And you think, okay, I got over that one. Then someone else slaps you on the left side. You ever feel that way? Be encouraged. It's temporary. It's temporary. Verse Peter 5. And then after your brief suffering, I love that, your brief suffering. Your brief suffering. Come on, that's, that's worthy of an amen. Brief suffering. The God of all loving grace. I love that. The God of all loving grace who has called you to share in his eternal glory in Christ will personally and powerfully restore you and make you stronger than ever. Yes, he will firmly, he will set you firmly in place and build you up. Hallelujah. And then another fact, being persecuted should create an eternal perspective. You see, it's something beyond what we presently are experiencing. And let the Apostle Paul say it in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's something greater. There's something greater. An eternal perspective. So those are the facts, but what is our response? And I'll go through these quickly. What is our response? First, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to, pr- you know, I think it's perfectly okay, and I'm not going to take the time to read these verses this morning, but Matthew 5, go ahead and put them up if you would on the screen. You can read them. Matthew 5 talks about loving your neighbor, but then also praying for your enemies. I'm going to tell you something. That's hard to do, to pray for somebody you disagree with. It's hard to pray for somebody who's slandering you. It's hard to pray for someone who's not telling the truth about you. It's hard. You get my point? But it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. Second, we're to be submissive. Now, the submissive doesn't mean that we submit to say Caesar is Lord. That's not where submission is. But rather, and I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. Whether the king has had a state or the officials he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and those and to honor those who do right. Can I encourage you? Pray for our national leaders. Pray for them. You may not agree with them, but it isn't about agreement. It's about being obedient to the word of God and to pray. But see, when we pray, we submit to those authorities. Now, when they tell me that I can no longer stand here and preach the Word of God in its entirety, I will stand here and preach the Word of God in its entirety. I will not submit to that, nor should any of us, because that is in direct conflict with my conscience before God. And I answer to God first. But I will continue to be the very best citizen that I can be. 
I will pray for my leaders. I will pay my taxes. I will honor those who serve in that capacity. All of us should do that. But we are to be submissive. It's hard. It's hard when we don't agree with what or how they live and what they do. But we're still to pray. We're to honor them. Third, our response is we need to remember who the enemy is. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Go ahead and put the scripture up if you would. It's, it is, it's authorities. It, it's heavenly. It's in heavenly realms. These are not flesh and blood enemies. These are evil rulers and authorities. And the, the next response is we need to be an example. I read this and spent some time with it last week in Matthew chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. We are to walk out into this world and we are to make a difference. Be an example. Here's another response is we need to stand firm in our faith. Stand firm in our faith. Now, I need to spend a couple of minutes with this. I'm just going to be, be honest with you. When I was in high school, I wasn't much of a stand firm in your faith kind of guy. Just wasn't. I think my personality was such that I was a little bit passive, a little timid at times. Years later, decades later, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, my best friend in high school. He had been trying to find me, and I really hadn't been as aggressive in trying to find him, but he had been aggressive trying to find me. We finally connected. By the time Doug and I connected, I found out that Doug was in kind of the later stages of cancer, and he was, he was really struggling physically. And one of the first questions that Doug asked me, he said, Gary, now I didn't know anything of his history. I knew nothing at this point. This is the first time we had talked in probably 35 years. And he said, Gary, are you still, are you still a person of faith? And I said, yeah, I am, Doug. And I told him a little bit about who I was, what I was doing. He said, well, I want you to know something. He says, I've come to I came to faith, told me when. He says, Gail, my wife, she's a follower of Christ. Both of my daughters know Jesus. I loved, I mean, he just went on and just began to pour out what God had done in his life. And I was, if I wasn't weeping, I was on the verge of tears. Because I never thought anybody would come to faith like Doug. And I, and I that's, I shouldn't say that, but that's just the truth. Some people you just think, I just don't know how, but God does that. And he made a statement to me that I'll, I, will, I will cherish. He said, through all of the time that we were growing up, he says, I just always saw in you something different. Saw faith in you is essentially what he was saying. And I'm thinking to myself on the other end of the phone, what did he see? What did he see? I mean, I, I, was, I was like... I was a dope. At least that's what I felt. Sometimes I think our standing, our standing for faith is far greater than we believe it is. But I want to encourage you, stand firm in your faith. Do not waver, no matter what difficulty, slander, or poverty comes your way. No matter what someone says about you. No matter whether it is partially true or it is completely a lie. Be willing to stand firm in your faith at the family dinners. Be the one that stands up and says, when there's no other believer in the room, say, can I pray God's blessing and God's favor over our family? Be that person. Stand, stand firm in your faith. And 
155, 156 A.D. The pastor in Smyrna, his name was Polycarp. He was the last known individual to know one of the original 12 disciples. He was, he was a disciple of John, who was the pastor, one of the pastors, or one of the ones that wrote to the church in Smyrna. He knew John personally. He was the pastor. Late in his life, some say that he was nearly 100 years old. Others say he was somewhere in the neighborhood of mid-80s, mid to late 80s. He was an elderly man, still pastoring the church. But he was standing firm in his faith. And others within the community of Smyrna betrayed him to the Romans. The Romans took him to the arena for execution. And the proconsul said, based upon his age, he wanted to be respectful. And he said, just recount. Just recant your faith. Just declare Caesar is Lord. What's, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal. Do it and you will be spared. His response, 86 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul came at him again. He says, we will, we will have you torn apart by wild animals. Recant your faith. Just, just say Caesar is Lord. And he said, we will have you burned alive. Just recant your faith. His response. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour. And then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment. Reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And he took off his outer robe, which was, un, it was customary for the Romans at that point to bind, to nail his hands to a stake, and then to light the fire. He says, you don't need to. I won't move. He took off his outer robe, and he stood at peace. They bound his hands with a rope. And then the same Jews that Jesus speaks of at the synagogue of Satan rushed to the arena, and they were the ones that put the, five, put the logs at his feet and lit him on fire. And as I was reading the full account of Polycarp's testimony, I was in tears, saying, God, we stand upon the shoulders of giants who have endured incredible suffering and persecution. Thank you for their lives. Thank you that they have stood firm in the faith. God, let me stand firm in the faith once delivered to me. And I asked this question, if things got so difficult in my life, how would I endure? Would I stand firm? And I want to answer yes. Yes. And my challenge to all of us this morning is to stand firm. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, and be strong. Let me talk for just a second to every young person in this room. Be strong, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be a person of integrity and faith at your local high school, your middle school, in college, wherever you are, stand firm in the faith. Do not back down, be a person of, of godliness. Don't back down. Don't back down. And then the last response is rejoice. 
in the midst of the suffering. You say, how do I do that? Just remember, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And you're in good company. Just remember this. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then John would say it later in John chapter 15. They don't like, they didn't, they don't like you because they didn't like me. You're in good company. Persecution doesn't destroy the church. It makes it stronger. Persecution doesn't destroy the church. It makes it stronger. And can I just say on a personal level, on an individual level rather, persecution won't destroy you. It'll make you stronger. Remember this phrase? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, I'm just going to say it, and I'm going to redeem that for just a moment. Persecuted, it won't kill you. It'll make you stronger to stand firm in the faith once delivered to the saints. It's a difficult message this morning to get happy about. Okay, can I just, just be honest? You know, you're not going to go out, boy, I'm just so happy today. This is not a happy text, I'll just tell you. But I want you to know something. Our brothers and sisters in regions around this world are in the middle of all of this. They're in the middle of it right now. They're facing it. What we face at this point is so small. I pray it stays that way. But here's, the, here's what Jesus said. He said, whoever... Whoever has ears, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. What is He saying to us? What is He saying to you? Do we hear? Do we hear? I pray that we do. One last. I'm going to give you one more spoiler before we conclude this morning. And I want you to take heart in this because there's a bright future. For us all, as followers of Jesus. Revelation 19, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. The roar of rushing waters and the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our, for the Lord our God, almighty reigns. I need to stop. Some of you need to know this morning that the Lord God almighty reigns over the stuff that's going on in your life. That you are worn out. You are beat up. Time is just, you don't know where you're going to turn next. I want you to know the Lord God Almighty reigns over your life. Don't, don't walk from this place this morning discouraged. Let me go on. Let us rejoice and give Him glory. John goes on, I saw heaven. I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I want you to know there is a day coming. There is a spoiler. The ultimate spoiler alert is this. I have read the back of this book and Jesus Christ wins the day. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. And if I could just leave you with this, stand firm in the faith. 
Don't waver. Stand firm. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. I, I pray in these next couple of minutes that you just do something that only you can do, God. I can't. I can't do this. You can by your spirit. Lord, there are some people in this room that are hurting. I just, I just feel it. I sense it in my heart. They're hurting. The difficulties. Man, the affliction. When they said the word affliction, they're crushed. They're pressed. They, oh, man, do they get it. The slander, they get it. The poverty, they get it. And that could be just poor in spirit, but it could be just poor, destitute. God, some this morning are just struggling with making a stand for you. They're having a hard time. But Lord, you're, you're the one. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. Hallelujah. You're the Lord God Almighty, and you reign. So Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning. We'd be encouraged this morning that you know exactly where we are. You're the one who's able to deliver us. Thank you. I give you praise this morning in Jesus' name.